0: Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations, sexual assault, drug abuse, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: In December 1957, Deputy U.S. Marshal Wayne Ritchie and his co workers were enjoying their holiday party in San Francisco's U.S. Post Office and Courthouse building. But after a few drinks and some finger foods, Ritchie started to feel a bit off.
0: As a former Marine, he knew his limits. He hadn't drunk too much. But still, the room was spinning. The lights on the office Christmas tree whirled like pinwheels, and Richie felt his temperature rising.
1: A wave of irrational paranoia swept over him. He wondered if his colleagues would notice his strange behavior, or if perhaps they never even liked him to begin with.
0: Richie thought, if they want to get rid of me, I'll help them. He went back to his office opened his desk drawer and pulled out two revolvers. Then he hit the streets of San Francisco.
1: Before too long, Richie stumbled into a bar called Shady Grove. He sat on a stool, ordered a bourbon and soda, then pointed his gun at the bartender, demanding all his cash. Another customer thwarted his efforts by hitting him over the head.
0: It would take more than 20 years for Richie to understand what came over him that night. He knew he wasn't acting like himself, but he couldn't explain his erratic behavior.
1: That is, until he learned it was very likely he'd been dosed with LSD. The culprits, the US government.
0: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: For these two episodes, we're doing something a little different. We're looking at actual conspiracies that changed American history.
0: We're covering two moments where absolute power corrupted absolutely. We'll see how authority, when placed into the wrong hands, can defy the laws of our government and give people more agency than the president himself. Especially when it's under the false pretenses of benefiting the greater good.
1: There's often a grain of truth in the theories we cover, but these stories are mostly confirmed. Almost everything we discuss in these episodes has been vetted over the years, thanks to government investigation, reporters, and first-hand accounts.
0: Today, we're looking at a Cold War experiment orchestrated by the CIA known as Operation Midnight Climax. In the 1950s and 60s, the government hoped to weaponize LSD for use as the ultimate truth serum. They conducted illicit tests and even opened safe houses in New York and San Francisco, where they tested it on unwitting U.S. civilians.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is
0: brought to you by ABC.
1: Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy
2: finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances
1: and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10-9 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel,
2: every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more. Only on Fanduel. New customers bet five dollars get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with Fanduel.
0: Outside of Switzerland, World War II was in full swing, but inside Sandoz laboratories in Basel, you'd have little idea.
1: Chemist, Albert Hoffman had been toying with a fungus called ergot for more than five years now. He believed it had medicinal properties and combined with other substances, it could be concentrated, maybe even produced on a greater scale.
0: Hoffman took a chemical compound deriving from ergot called lysergic acid and combined it with an ammonia-like compound called diethylamine. He tested it on animals and found they acted excited while taking the drug. So that day, he finally decided to try it for himself.
1: 40 minutes after consuming the dose, Hoffman felt dizzy, anxious, and sometimes paralyzed. He experienced visual distortions, an overwhelming desire to laugh, and a strange hankering for milk. Hoffman realized there was no way he could safely bike home that evening, and demanded his assistant ride alongside him.
0: By the time Hoffman got home, he was certain he was dying. But when he summoned a doctor, they claimed his blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration were completely normal.
1: Sure enough, the following day, Hoffman felt better than ever. He was euphoric and had a zest for life. But mostly, he was excited about the future. He just created a super drug he called LSD.
0: It took another six years for Hoffman's discovery to reach the United States, but it did so at a pivotal time.
1: By the 1950s, World War II was over, but now the United States and the Soviets were engaging in a new conflict, the Cold War.
0: Many government agencies were terrified the Soviets would surpass them in the arms and technology race, but the CIA was hyper-focused on one very specific weapon, mind control.
1: They were looking for a truth serum, something that could break the will of their enemies, coerce secrets out of trained spies, and generally influence anyone's behavior.
0: CIA scientists began following medical pharmaceutical conferences in search of a drug that could help their quest. According to research available at the time, the drug could induce psychosis symptoms, which meant it could make someone more vulnerable to interrogation and the whims of the CIA.
1: The agency created a clandestine program to experiment more with mind control in 1953. They called it MKUltra.
0: The director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, approved a starting budget of $300,000, which they could spend on almost anything. The project was so secretive, many CIA employees had no idea it was even happening. But a chemist named Sidney Gottlieb did.
1: Dulles had appointed Dr. Gottlieb to head up the program. To anyone outside the CIA, Gottlieb might have seemed like an unlikely candidate. He was an orthodox Jew turned de facto hippie. He raised goats and chickens, lived on a farm, studied Buddhism, and loved to meditate. He was said to be a good husband and an even better father. But at the office, Dr. Gottlieb was a completely different person.
0: After joining the CIA in 1951, Gottlieb had run other clandestine war programs like Project Artichoke, testing interrogation techniques like electroshock, sensory isolation, and various drugs on overseas prisoners.
1: It seemed Gottlieb had no moral quandaries when it came to his subjects. But the way he saw it, These efforts were crucial to America's survival. The ends always justified the means.
0: Dulles trusted Gottlieb so much, he operated under very little supervision. As author Stephen Kinzer says, quote, the guy had a license to kill. And when it came to MKUltra and the discovery of the so-called truth serum, it seemed that Gottlieb would stop at nothing to get the job done. One of his
1: first orders of business used $240,000 to buy the world's supply of LSD, which, by the way, was legal at the time. They made a deal with Hoffman's laboratory. Anytime someone else asked to buy the drug, they had to report exactly who was inquiring.
0: Once they had a monopoly on LSD, the CIA could begin their testing in earnest. And Gottlieb figured where better to start than with their own staff.
1: Some CIA agents volunteered to test the drugs themselves, or they agreed to have the drugs slip to them when they were least expecting it. But over time, this was no longer good enough for Gottlieb. He needed to see what would happen to someone who had no idea LSD was in the picture.
0: In November 1953, just eight months after the MK Ultra program kicked off, Gottlieb invited scientists from the Army Corps Special Operations Division to a retreat in Western Maryland. He chose a remote cabin called Deep Creek Lodge, far removed from the rest of civilization.
1: One evening after dinner, one of Gottlieb's cohorts slipped 70 micrograms of LSD into each attendee's cocktail. The night took a sharp turn as the drug set in. Shop talk turned into raucous laughter and philosophical conversations.
0: Gottlieb eventually told the scientists about the experiment, and many shrugged it off as an occupational hazard. But some, like 43-year-old Frank Olson, weren't as passive. He allegedly spent the next several nights of the trip fighting feelings of anxiety, agitation, and lingering paranoia.
1: When Olson returned home to New York, his wife said he seemed distant and despondent. He told her his colleagues had poked fun at him and said he'd done something terrible. Mrs. Olson knew her husband worked in biological warfare and his job was certainly stressful but he seemed more overwhelmed than usual.
0: Ten days after the retreat, Olson was still feeling the effects of his LSD trip. He agreed to receive treatment at a CIA-approved Maryland mental health facility. His colleague, Robert Lashbrook, would escort him there.
1: When the two couldn't get a flight for that evening, they spent the night in New York City at the Statler Hotel.
0: Several hours after checking in, Frank Olsen fell through the glass of his 10th floor window.
1: The official story was he died by suicide, but there were and still are suspicions that Olson was pushed and his death was meant to hide the CIA's latest Cold War experiments.
0: Officials halted the testing of LSD for a few months while they looked deeper into Olsen's case. But eventually, Dulles handed the keys to the kingdom back to Gottlieb. However, this time, there was one small rule. Gottlieb had to experiment on people who couldn't easily be traced back to the agency. Always ten steps ahead, Gottlieb already had a plan in motion.
1: About a year and a half before Olson's death, around June 1952, Gottlieb had read about a man named George Hunter White. He was an employee at the Federal Bureau of Narcotics who dosed unwitting Manhattan Project engineers with concentrated cannabis.
0: Which meant White had the experience Gottlieb needed he set up a meeting with White and asked if he'd be interested in becoming a CIA consultant on a top secret project. White happily obliged.
1: White was also useful for another reason. He had connections. Coming from the narcotics bureau, he had access to sex workers, drug dealers, and members of organized crime. People Gottlieb believed wouldn't be overly suspicious getting slipped a drug let alone report a federal officer for doing so
0: it took almost a year for gottlieb to get white's security approval but the second it came through he drove to new york to deliver the news himself
1: gottlieb also brought his checkbook and handed over a deposit to the tune of 3400 dollars
0: white cashed the check Then he split the payment to rent two adjacent apartments in New York's Greenwich Village under the pseudonym Morgan Hall.
1: For the next several months, White and his team lured dozens, if not hundreds, of unwitting civilians back to these apartments and dosed them with LSD. All in an effort to fight communism, of course.
0: With this, Gottlieb planted the seeds for a more nuanced project under the banner of MK Ultra.
1: This one, he dubbed Operation Midnight Climax.
2: Coming up, chaos erupts. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes, but why?
1: Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill.
2: Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree.
1: Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations.
2: Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In
1: 1953, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb hired Bureau of Narcotics Officer George White to help him run a new program. White had connections in New York's underbelly, and Gottlieb trusted him to recruit the project's newest test subjects.
0: By the fall, White had rented a set of apartments on Bedford Street in Greenwich Village. One was staged as an ordinary home where White could bring his subjects The other was filled with surveillance equipment and several CIA agents who recorded the subjects through a one-way mirror.
1: White spent his evenings bar hopping around Greenwich Village, chatting with a wide cast of characters. Along with his fake name, he created fictional stories about himself, claiming he was a bohemian artist or a fisherman. After a few drinks, White invited them back to 81 Bedford Street, where he offered them either food, cocktails, or cigarettes, all laced with LSD.
0: Several times, White lured his own friends and acquaintances back. While we don't have their names, we do know one of them was an editor for a fetish magazine called The Vixen Press. But mostly, White's victims were younger women or sex workers he'd picked up in bars.
1: Gottlieb demanded that no official records be kept of the program he called subproject number 42, but White did keep personal diaries. They were filled with entries apparently describing people's experiences with a drug. Things like, Gloria gets horror, Janet sky high.
0: On one particular night of debauchery, a victim stumbled into Lenox Hill Hospital, insisting she'd been dosed with something. After the staff examined her, they told her she must be mistaken. She should go home and sleep it off.
1: According to author Stephen Kinzer, the CIA supposedly had an understanding with members of the New York City Police Department and the local hospitals. They likely told them all this was a matter of national security.
0: Which is terrifying. Especially because White carried on this way for the next two years. But in 1955, he received a phone call from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in San Francisco. Their district supervisor was stepping down and White was asked to fill the role. Worried about how this move might affect the program, White spoke to Gottlieb, who had a simple solution. Bring the project with you to San Francisco.
1: To make it official, Gottlieb took subproject number 42 and gave it its own title, Operation Midnight Climax.
0: Since White didn't know San Francisco as well as he did New York, he needed a local to be his right-hand man. He found that in former military intelligence officer Ira Ike Feldman. Feldman had been undercover in San Francisco before. The first time he posed as a mobster looking to buy heroin.
1: Sometime in 1955, White called Feldman to his office in the federal building, sat him down and told him he wanted to recruit him for a new assignment. The CIA was testing mind-bending drugs on civilians. If he could find out how well LSD worked, he could help his country defeat the Soviets and stave off communism. After a little hesitation, Feldman accepted White's offer.
0: One of Feldman's first assignments was convincing sex workers to help with the project. They'd lure men back to the safe house Offer them a beverage and slip them the drug. And this time, they'd add sex to the mix.
1: He hoped this combination of intimacy and hallucinogens would get his subjects to open up about almost anything.
0: Feldman paid them $50 to $100 for every person they brought back to 225 Chestnut Street. Sometimes he compensated them with heroin instead of cash. They also received a get-out-of-jail-free card for the next time they found themselves in trouble.
1: Meanwhile, White was laying the foundation for a new safe house at 225 Chestnut Street in Telegraph Hill.
0: The L-shaped apartment had beautiful views of the bay. White hired a friend to install bugging equipment and microphones, which fed into an adjacent apartment the agents called the listening post.
1: One CIA officer said the place was, quote, "...so wired that if you spilled a glass of water, you'd probably electrocute yourself."
0: They spared no expense when it came to decorating. The bordello-chic apartment, which came to be known as The Pad, had provocative pictures on the walls, red curtains, and large mirrors. It also had a full pornographic library and drawers filled with sex toys
1: inside the safe house the bar was fully stocked for both the subjects and the agents on the other side of the mirror cia officers were known to pass around a pitcher of martinis while they watched sex workers try to lure secrets out of unsuspecting johns it's possible they even dabbled with lsd themselves after all the drug was still legal
0: in one experiment Feldman up the ante. Instead of their average Johns, he told the women to seduce men working on a covert aviation program. Their instructions, bring the target back to the pad, offer them sex and drug them before asking questions like, you know that plane you're working on? How high do you think it could fly?
1: They tried other tactics, like waiting for a man to nearly climax before attempting to extract critical information. While that didn't work like they hoped, they discovered men opened up more after intercourse. They encouraged sex workers to stay with clients instead of leaving right away. They found it boosted the subject's ego and got them talking about their business much easier.
0: It seemed like sex was the real truth serum. It proved to be a more powerful drug than LSD.
1: One of the biggest problems was the people running the operation had zero qualifications to assess the experiments clinically. Neither White, Feldman, nor any of the other operatives had a background in psychology.
0: To be fair, they did have a psychiatrist from Stanford Medical School come in to observe, sporadically but he wasn't qualified to offer medical treatment if a victim fell ill from the dosings, and neither were the other agents.
1: Still, the operation continued in this reckless fashion. At least two other safe houses opened in the Bay Area, one at the Plantation Inn at Lombard and Webster Street, the other at 261 Green Street in Mill Valley.
0: Over at the Mill Valley Safe House, Gottlieb expanded his ventures by testing other devices he'd created. Stink bombs, itching and sneezing powder, and drug-laced needles used to stealthily penetrate wine corks and poison the bottles. On one occasion, Gottlieb
1: wanted to see if he could dose an entire room of people with LSD using a can of aerosol, so he had his undercover agents throw a party Fortunately for those unwitting guests, the weather was so hot they had to keep the windows open. It rendered the experiment a failure.
0: Eventually, White and his agents began operating outside the safe houses as well. According to White's personal diary, he slipped acid to civilians hanging out at local beaches, bars, and restaurants all over town, likely through drinks, food, or laced cigarettes.
1: Ruth Kelly, a singer at a San Francisco club called The Black Sheep, was one of White's unsuspecting victims. One evening, White made a pass at Kelly, who rejected his advances. During their conversation, he reportedly slipped her LSD, which hit the singer just as she was getting on stage to perform. She was later hospitalized until the drugs wore off.
0: To say things had gotten wildly out of control would be an understatement. Operation Midnight Climax was no longer racing against the Soviets to find a truth serum. Instead, it had turned into a massive, dangerous party on the taxpayer's dime. Gottlieb reportedly tested LSD on himself over 200 times. White also dabbled in the drug and clearly enjoyed it.
1: In 1971, White actually penned a letter to Gottlieb stating, quote, Of course, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill and cheat, steal, deceive, rape and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest?
0: Operation Midnight Climax was going off the rails, but it still carried on for another 10 years. Finally, in 1963, the fun and games were coming to an end. After the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, CIA director Alan Dulles, one of Gottlieb's biggest supporters, was forced to resign.
1: Now there was a new sheriff in town by the name of John McCone, Shortly after finding out about the MK Ultra program, he and his new inspector general began dismantling it piece by piece.
0: It seemed like those behind Operation Midnight Climax weren't going to get away with their abuse of power forever. Or would they? Coming up, Operation Midnight Climax is exposed and its leaders scramble to protect themselves. Now, back to the story.
1: After the failed 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba, President John F. Kennedy demanded MKUltra's godfather, CIA Director Alan Dulles, resign. But the program was so secretive, even Dulles's replacement, John McCone, wasn't made aware of the project when he stepped into the role in 1963.
0: It took some digging from McCone's new Inspector General, John Ehrman, to finally lure the cat out of the bag. Ehrman found not only had the CIA laced unwitting civilians with LSD under the guise of national security, there were also many subjects who'd reportedly gotten sick from it. While the extent of their illnesses is widely unknown, Ehrman recommended the safe houses to be closed immediately.
1: McCone suspended Operation Midnight Climax in 1964, but according to many sources, the safe houses remained in operation unofficially. The CIA's Deputy Director of Plans, Richard Helms, claimed, quote, "...while I share your uneasiness and distaste for any program which tends to intrude upon an individual's private and legal prerogatives... I believe it is necessary that the agency maintain a central role in this activity.
0: It took another year and a half for McCone to finally get his way. By 1966, both the New York and Bay Area safe houses had officially shuttered their doors. Ironically, that same year, possession of LSD was finally made illegal in the U.S.,
1: Sidney Gottlieb had anticipated this day would come, which is likely why he ordered zero records be kept on the Operation Midnight Climax program. But the same couldn't be said for all of MKUltra.
0: As the Watergate scandal swept the nation in 1973, Gottlieb saw just how damning a set of documents could be. Knowing one of his chief supporters was about to lose his job over the scandal, Gottlieb hopped in his car and drove to the CIA records center.
1: He strolled inside and asked the archivists to destroy any box marked MK Ultra.
0: He didn't realize there were 20,000 other records that survived the purge, expense reports, documents on how to use LSD, and one of Gottlieb's memos claiming, quote, as an intelligence tool, LSD was inherently ineffective.
1: As anticipated, Richard Helms, now the director of Central Intelligence, was forced to resign from the CIA shortly after Watergate. And Gottlieb, having been a member of his camp, announced his own retirement.
0: So, yeah. His days of getting high on government-purchased LSD were over. But his spiritual awakening was just beginning. After his retirement, he and his wife sold their house and most of their belongings and embarked on a two-year trip through Africa and Asia. Perhaps
1: looking to balance his karma, Gottlieb found himself in India, volunteering at a hospital treating people with leprosy. But he couldn't hide from his past forever.
0: In his absence, a journalist named Seymour Hersh had uncovered several incriminating documents that the CIA had failed to destroy. In 1974, Hersh broke the MKUltra story in the New York Times, claiming the CIA used civilians as guinea pigs to test weapons of war. Now, the U.S. government had no choice but to investigate further.
1: Several months later, the church committee, designed to investigate the potential abuses of federal agencies, called Gottlieb back to the states to testify.
0: Gottlieb agreed to appear at the hearings under one condition, he be granted immunity for his testimony. The church committee accepted his terms, Perhaps because they only knew a small fraction of what had gone on in MKUltra. Gottlieb was merely seen as a chemist working for the operation, rather than the mastermind behind it.
1: Still, Gottlieb didn't do much to hold up his end of the bargain. In a private hearing, he claimed he'd forgotten almost everything about his time with the CIA. He didn't remember who his boss was who the deputy director was, or even what department he worked for. But he did admit other agents experimented with LSD before giving it to the public.
0: Somehow, Gottlieb weaseled his way out of any punishment. Instead of paying for his experiments, he went on to enjoy his retirement on his farm in Virginia.
1: But following the hearings, public interest in Operation Midnight Climax increased. In 1977, John Marks, author of the book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, filed a Freedom of Information Act request. He hoped to get a closer look at what went on inside the program.
0: Around the same time, George White's personal diaries were released to the public. As we mentioned before, they exposed many details from his time on the operation, including descriptions of meetings he had with Gottlieb and other high-ranking CIA officials. It seems none of the men who'd orchestrated these experiments received more than a slap on the wrist. But the church committee established a task force to try and locate the victims, which proved nearly impossible, seeing as most of the documents were destroyed. According to an SF Weekly article written by Troy Hooper, thousands may have been affected by the program, but only 14 of those people were ever notified.
1: Which meant there were countless others who continued questioning what happened to them on that one strange night in the 50s or 60s, including Deputy Federal Marshal Wayne Ritchie.
0: Remember, Ritchie experienced paranoia and hallucinations during a government Christmas party in 1957. Afterward, he wandered through the Fillmore District before trying to rob a bar at gunpoint.
1: For years, Richie couldn't explain what came over him that night. He pleaded guilty to armed robbery, and luckily for him, a sympathetic judge took the ex-Marine's side, letting him off without prison time. But for the next two decades, he battled depression and never fully bounced back.
0: Then one day in the spring of 1999, Ritchie stumbled upon Gottlieb's obituary and everything started to unravel. He read about the CIA's tests on ordinary citizens all around San Francisco and the timeline matched up. The articles also mentioned a name Ritchie recognized, George White.
1: Ritchie knew White personally and once he realized he was behind the San Francisco druggings, he was certain he was one of his victims. White's diaries even confirmed the event, stating, Xmas Party Fed Building Press Room. The date on that entry matched the night of Richie's crime.
0: In the early 2000s, Richie filed a lawsuit against the agency. But in 2005, the court dismissed his case because Ritchie couldn't prove he had LSD in his system at the time of his attempted robbery.
1: The judge ultimately called it, quote, a troubling case and that if indeed true, Ritchie has paid a terrible price in the name of national security, which was exactly what Gottlieb and his team wanted everyone to believe.
0: So, who did Gottlieb's experiments really help in the end? The LSD tests were said to be, for the greater good, protecting the citizens of the United States from a faceless villain named communism. But when it was all said and done, the program only seemed to ruin the lives of those it was meant to serve.
1: Which makes you wonder, how many other conniving plots have been, or will be, conducted behind closed doors? How many other conspiracies have slipped under our government's radar?
0: And how many conspiracies have we questioned that may actually deserve a second look?
1: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information amongst the many sources we used in today's episode, we found John Mark's The Search for the Manchurian Candidate as well as Stephen Kinzer's Poisoner-in-Chief extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll be back next time with a new episode.
0: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
1: And the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, edited by Mallory Cara and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddy Rivera, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg.
1: Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill.
2: Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.